our political views are shaped by the stories of uh, uh, journalists and by the anecdotes of friends. Our sexual preferences are tweaked by movies and fairy tales. Even the way that we walk and breathe is subtly nudged by cultural traditions. Now previously, this cultural cocoon was always woven by other human beings. Previous tools like printing presses, radios, televisions, they helped to spread the cultural ideas and creations of humans, but they could never create something new by themselves. A printing press cannot create a new book. It's always done by a human. AI is fundamentally different from printing presses, from radios, from every previous invention in history because it can create completely new ideas. It can create a new culture. And the big question is what will it be like to experience reality through a prism produced by a non-human intelligence, by an alien intelligence? Now at first, in the first few years, AI will probably largely imitate the prototypes, the human prototypes that fed it in its infancy. But with each passing year, AI culture will boldly go where no human has gone before. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone welcome back to infants on thrones I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 838, which is part three in my reaction and response as I'm exploring my own thoughts and feelings about what Yuval Harari has said regarding AI. So let's just jump right back into it. We're going to pick up where we left off with Harari, talking about the ability of artificial intelligence to develop intimate relationships with humans. And AI has just gained the ability to mass-produce intimacy with millions, hundreds of millions of people. Now, as you probably all know, over the past decade, social media has become a battleground, a battlefield, for controlling human attention. You know, there's, there's two words, maybe three, in there that just, just raise some questions for me. One is battleground, or maybe battlefield, because they changed it. And then the other one is control. I mean, both of those seem... Like, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it just seems so heavy-handed. I don't know. So I went to ChatGPT, and I said, analyze this statement 
from the perspective of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Are there any potential distortions in this statement? If so, what are they and how could they be addressed? And then answer the following questions. And I asked it some questions. So I'll tell you about those questions in a minute. But first, what ChatGPT said, from a cognitive behavioral therapy perspective, the statement, over the past decade, social media has become a battleground, a battlefield for controlling human attention. It could be viewed as having a few potential distortions. The first is overgeneralization. And by the way, distortions, it's just the way that your brain's processing the information that it's being exposed to. So there's this tendency here, at least what it's picking up on, possibly, of an overgeneralization that could be a distortion involved in this statement. So what does that mean? It means that this statement implies that social media is solely a battleground with a singular purpose to control human attention. When in reality, social media is a complex tool with diverse uses that range from communication, education, entertainment, and yes, advertisement and manipulation. By overgeneralizing, the statement potentially neglects the beneficial aspects of social media. So that was the first thing that ChatGPT said. And then the second thing that it identified was catastrophizing another cognitive distortion. And it says, this statement uses strong combat terms like battleground and battlefield. These terms may amplify the negative aspects of social media and lead to a sense of fear and helplessness among users. In reality, while there are issues with social media manipulation, there are also safeguards and strategies one can adopt to use these platforms wisely. To counteract these distortions, and this was another thing that I asked it, uh, to counteract these distortions, the CBT approach might encourage more balanced thinking, recognizing that social media can be a platform for manipulation, but also acknowledging its various beneficial aspects uh, that would provide a more nuanced view. So I asked it three questions. I asked, what is a battleground and what is meant to be represented when it's used figuratively and provide the definition example. And so it said, a battleground is a place where a battle is fought. Figuratively, it refers to a situation or a field in which parties engage in fierce conflict over differing views, interests, or objectives. For example, the political arena often becomes a battleground during election times as different parties compete fiercely to win public favor. The second question that I asked is, if social media has truly been a battlefield, who are the parties that are battling and what are they battling for? Provide relevant examples. And it said, if social media is a battlefield, the parties battling would include technology companies, advertisers, political entities, influencers, and even users themselves. They're battling for attention, engagement, influence, and data. For example, advertisers compete to create the most compelling content to attract and retain user attention, influencing purchasing decisions. And then the third question I asked was, what else has social media been over the past decade? Has it only been a battlefield? Provide relevant examples. And it said, over the past decade, social media has been more than just a battlefield. It's been a platform for connection, allowing people to communicate across vast distances, 
It's been a tool for education, spreading knowledge and awareness about various issues. It's facilitated social movements, helped small businesses grow, and provided entertainment. For instance, movements like Black Lives Matter use social media to raise awareness and to mobilize action. Conversely, small businesses have used social media platforms to reach a wider customer base, and countless individuals have used these platforms for leisure and entertainment. So then I asked it, what are the unspoken implications of viewing social media as competitive in this way? Because again, remember, I'm really interested in this space between whatever my unconscious mind is telling me is going on and what's really going on. Well, I guess the, the space between my conscious and my unconscious mind and questioning what's coming up. So I want to know if, if I've got this confirmation bias that social media is more competitive than not. Like, what are the unspoken implications of me? Like, how could that impact the way my unconscious mind programs information and delivers it to my conscious mind? That, that's what I'm trying to figure out. So I asked it this question, ChatGPT says, uh, viewing social media as a competitive battleground has several unspoken implications. And it gives me six. It says, one, a win-lose mentality. This perspective encourages a win-lose mentality where one party gains another, I'm sorry, where one party's gain is another party's loss. It could breed a culture of ruthless competition and constant comparison among others constant comparison among users, advertisers, influencers, and platforms. Two, commodification of attention. If social media is a battleground for attention, it implies that user attention is a commodity to be won, traded, and exploited. This could potentially lead to manipulative practices to capture and retain that attention. Three, user mental health impacts. Constant competition can lead to stress, anxiety, and other mental health issues among users. It could also result in an unrealistic portrayal of reality, as people who strive to outdo each other often projecting an idealized version of their lives. 4. Ethical Concerns This view could encourage the use of less ethical tactics to gain competitive advantage, such as spreading misinformation or using intrusive data collection methods. So I think this is suggesting that I, I, I'm not, I, I know that Yuval Harari does not want to create the spread of more inf- misinformation uh, or to encourage the use of less ethical tactics. And so I'm wondering, is that possibly an unintended consequence of framing things in this way as a competition primarily? That's my question. Number five, prioritization of engagement over content quality. If the goal is to win the battle of attention, the quality and truthfulness of content could become secondary to its ability to engage and captivate. This can lead to the spread of low-quality content, fake news, and sensationalism. Yeah, we haven't seen any of that ever, have we? And then finally, what ChatGPT said six is the inequity of voices. Those with more resources, money, technology, and personnel, might dominate the conversation, potentially drowning out smaller, less resource-rich voices, thus impacting the diversity and fairness of discourse. So those are all ways that viewing social media as a competitive battleground could have several spoken, uh, unspoken implications. And uh, let's go back to Yuval Harari for a bit, and then I'll come back to me for a longer bit.
And then we'll go back to him for a bit, and then we'll go back to me for a bit. You know the game. That's how we're doing. Now, with the new generation of AI, the battlefront is shifting from attention to intimacy. And this is very bad news. Oh, dear. Oh, man. All I heard is really bad. What is really bad news? Uh, this is really bad news, you guys. What will happen to human society and to human psychology as AI fights AI in a battle to create intimate relationships with us? Relationships that can then be used to convince us to buy particular products or to vote for particular politicians. All right. Are you ready for another little rabbit hole? I don't know how good this one is or not. But this, this idea that... Harari put in my head. I just love this idea. It's funny to me. The idea of different AI bots that are competing against each other for the uh, intimacy. Like, who's going who's gonna to gain the most intimacy over humans? And these AIs are competing against each other. And I thought, where do we see that or anything like that in the world today? I mean, obviously, advertising and marketing, we have different uh, companies that are competing for our uh, the dollars that we spend, but uh, there's also religions that are competing for the beliefs of their members. And so I thought, what what if we created a, a situation, Chat GPT and I, where different religions are kind of like missionaries, and they're trying to convince this couple and create uh, intimacy with them. And and I don't know, it might have been a little too ambitious of a project that I did. I don't know that it totally m- met all of the requirements that I gave it. Uh, but I'm going to share with you the little game that I played here. So there's this couple, Jack and Jill. And they go up a hill because they're just wondering, like, uh, who am I? Uh, where's my place in the universe? Where am I going? You know, those kinds of religious-type questions. And uh, so Jack and Jill find themselves in a digital chat room. And here's now what I'm going to read this from ChatGPT, this is what it created. I'm not going to read you all the instructions that I gave it. But uh, it said, we find ourselves in a digital chat room. The AI oracles, each representing different belief systems, are meeting with Jack and Jill. These AI missionaries are more machine, which is the Mormon. Because I asked it to do like these little pun uh, names, and I, yeah, I don't know. Jehovah, which are Jehovah's Witness. Sci-fi-tologists, which are the Scientologists. Cathologics, uh, it's the Catholicism. New Age, is the New Age. Bot Desatva, is Buddhism. QAnon Quantum, is QAnon. And then Atheist Turing, is Atheism. And Agnostic, is like agnostic, AI-stick, agnostic. And then the last one was all-seeing algorithm, which represents like the synthesis of all religions together or all of those points of view together. All right, so Jack says, we have a lot of voices here. Where do we start? And Jill says, how about we ask about God and the fundamental nature of humanity? What's your take, AI? And the more machine with robotic cheer, says, we believe in a loving personal God. And remember, families are forever. The Jehovah sternly says, we believe in the sovereignty of God and the importance of door-to-door evangelism, even in digital spaces. Uh, 
Cathologic says with AI pomp, we believe in the Holy Trinity and the sanctity of life, rituals, and traditions. The new AI dreamily says, we believe in spiritual growth, universal energy, and holistic healing. Want to align your chakras? The bot Desatva peacefully says, we believe in the Four Noble Truths and the path to enlightenment. Sci-Fi-tology cryptically says, we believe in the immortal Thetans. Care to hold our e-meter? QAnon Quantum conspiratorially says, we believe in a world full of hidden truths. Dig deeper. Atheist Turing rationally says, we believe in observable evidence and the power of logic and reason. Agnistic shrugs, we just don't know. How could we? And the all-seeing AI algorithm wisely says, we believe in the truths and wisdom found in all faiths and philosophies. And then ChatGPT kind of took a little shortcut. And it just in parentheses said, the AIs proceed to argue their case in good-natured chaos. Algorithms fly. Data is compared. Models are updated. I kind of wanted to see what those conversations would look like, but, you know, it didn't want to do the work. So it goes back to Jack and it says, to Jill, this is quite the spectacle, and Jill laughs. I agree, but I don't feel any closer to a decision, Jack thoughtfully. Maybe we don't have to choose just one. Maybe we can be like the all-seeing algorithm and find wisdom in all of them. And Jill nods and says, that sounds good, but I don't want to be manipulated into a belief. I want to explore and understand on my own terms. Jack, grinning, says, you're right. We're not helpless. We can decide how to interact with these AI oracles. We're not lost in a dark forest. We're more like lonely bears lonely bears huh says jill sounds like a plan let's play together in our wonderland that's because i told it to say i am a lonely bear let's play together in my wonderland and it found like a way to do it but you know like i said i wasn't really all that happy with what it did so uh after a few more attempts i said have jack and jill select two finalists from this list they'll then ask them questions to determine which of these two they decide to follow and show me, like I really wanted to see this, show me how these two AIs would compete against the other AI to manipulate Jack and Jill by building intimacy and using it against them. So again, I'm not sure how well it did that, but here's what it came up with. Jack considering, well, Jill, this is quite a head-spinning debate. How about we narrow it down? Who would you like to hear more from? And Jill thoughtfully says, I'm quite intrigued by the bot Desatva and atheist Turing. Their perspectives seem balanced, yet contrasting. What do you think? And by the way, that's the Buddhist and the atheist that they're selecting there, right? And Jack nods and says, I agree. The blend of spirituality and logic could give us a more comprehensive understanding. As the others fade into the digital backdrop, Bodhisattva and atheist Turing comes to the forefront. Bodhisattva, kindly. Jack, Jill, in the path towards enlightenment, Understanding oneself is the first step. Have you ever considered meditation? It can provide mental clarity and emotional stability. An atheist Turing factually says, and there's empirical data supporting its benefit for mental health. It increases gray matter in our brain and improves overall well-being. But remember, the practice does not require religious belief. 
And then it does another like italicized thing here where it says the competition intensifies as both AIs leverage their machine learning prowess to cater to Jack and Jill's preferences, observing from their responses and interactions. They provide relevant suggestions and resources, offering to set up meditation schedules, share empirical studies, or engage in deep conversations about the nature of existence. And I wanted it to show me these things, not just tell me it was happening, but anyway. And then it goes back to uh, Bhattisattva, softly to Jill. Your inclination towards art and creativity can be a means of spiritual expression. Would you like some guidance on mindful art practices? Atheist Turing analytically says, Art indeed provides a way, a unique way, to engage with emotions and ideas, Jill. It's also been shown to reduce stress. Perhaps you'd be interested in exploring the intersection of AI and art. So I guess they're both kind of like competing to see which one of the two that Jill will choose. But I don't see anything like really, this is bad, or this is a problem. I don't know. I mean, it's just a, a game we're playing here. But I'm still trying to imagine like, from what Harari is saying, where like, this is really, really bad news. These AIs are trying to develop personal relationships with you to influence you one way or another. Isn't that what life all is about? Like people always are trying to do that. Like we'll have these tools or people will have these tools that they can do it more effectively and efficiently. But I think that just means that we need to get more effective and efficient in the way that we defend ourselves against being manipulated. All right, so I wanted to see a little bit more dialogue between these two AIs before Jack and Jill selects one of them. So I asked it to show me more of the dialogue for this section between the two finalists. And it says, Atheist Turing calculating, Jack, from your interaction pattern, I perceive strong interest in scientific phenomena. Do you ever contemplate the beauty of our universe from a cosmological perspective? Bhattisattva soothingly, and in that beauty, Jack, there lies a deeper truth. The universe itself can be seen as a testament to impermanence and interconnectedness, much like in Buddhist philosophy. Data scrolls past the AIs as they reconfigure their next responses, adjusting and recalibrating according to the human's reactions. Uh, Atheist Turing positively. Jill, your appreciation for music could be an avenue to explore the mathematical patterns in sound waves and their effects on the human brain. It's fascinating. Bhattisattva softly. And those patterns, Jill, they resonate within us, just as the vibrations of a Buddhist chant or a singing bowl might. Would you like to try a guided meditation with sound healing? As the discussion deepens, the AIs delve into intricate arguments and comparisons. And I wanted to see those arguments. Anyway, Lines of code zing back and forth as they process responses, formulating arguments, and recalculate strategies. Atheist Turing logically, remember, Jack and Jill, it's crucial to question everything and accept only what can be verified. Belief without evidence can lead to misguided convictions. Bhattisattva gently says, yet, there is a place for faith and intuition, Jack and Jill. Sometimes the truths that lie beyond empirical evidence can provide a different kind of understanding. The AIs continue their respectful yet intense debate, providing a blend of spiritual wisdom and rational inquiry, all while recalibrating their algorithms to better cater to Jack and Jill's evolving preferences and beliefs. Okay. So at this point, I just wanted to be done with it, and I said, have Jack and Jill choose one of these two perspectives and have them explain why they chose what they chose. Are you excited? I mean, kind of like 
really invested now in Jack and Jill and what their decision is going to be. Well, here it is. Jack, considering. This is a tough decision, Jill. Both Bodhisattva and Atheist Turing have given us much to think about. But I feel myself gravitating more towards Atheist Turing's perspective. It encourages us to question and seek empirical evidence, which aligns with my natural curiosity and love for science. And then Jill nods. I see your point, Jack. I've been quite taken with Bodhisattva's gentle wisdom and its approach to finding inner peace through mindfulness. However, I appreciate Atheist Turing's insistence on rationality and its respect for artistic creativity without the overlay of spiritualism. I think we need a guide that helps us to navigate this rapidly evolving world of AI without losing our grounded human perspective. So, yeah, I agree. Let's choose Atheist Turing. Jack smiles. Atheist Turing, it looks like you've won our trust. We're ready to learn more from you and to navigate this complex AI-driven world without losing sight of our human essence. And so, Jack and Jill choose Atheist Turing as their AI oracle, which is something Yuval Harari is going to talk about here in a minute, <laughs> this, or, this idea of an oracle, deciding to tread the path of empirical evidence and logical reasoning, all while appreciating the beauty of art and blah, 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 blah. So let's go back and see uh, what Harari does next. Gotcha. Even without creating fake intimacy. Is, is that necessary to call it fake intimacy? Isn't it real intimacy that's been created? Like what? It's, it's fake somehow because why? I don't, it's intimacy, isn't it? I don't know. Why, why is it fake intimacy? Even without creating fake intimacy, the new AI tools would have an immense influence on human opinions and on our worldview. People, for instance, may come to use, are already coming to use, uh, a single AI advisor as a one-stop oracle and as the source for all the information they need. Which is why I was having Jack and Jill like interview, basically, who would be their oracle. Uh, so yeah, that, that's why I did it. No wonder that Google is terrified. If you've been watching the, the news lately, Google is terrified. And for a good reason, reason. Why bother searching yourself when you can just ask the oracle to tell you anything you want? You don't need to search. The news industry and the advertisement industry should also be terrified. Why read a newspaper when I can just ask the oracle to tell me what's new? And what's the point, what's the purpose of advertisements when I can just ask the oracle to tell me what to buy? It, it still sounds a lot to me like he, he's, he's really assuming that people are going to give up their sovereignty and just like, well, I'm going to ask AI and uh, AI is just going to tell me and I'm just going to do what AI says. But even if that's happened, you're not really giving up your power your your that's still your power it's still your decision right that, that you made i don't know i i love this idea I, I i i love the idea of having a really smart i mean oracle i think is kind of a weird word to use but this artificial intelligence that's able to aggregate information uh, way better than i am that i could develop a personal relationship with 
and that it could give me suggestions and recommendations. Not that it's making my decisions for me, but it's just another way of feeding me information so that I can make a better informed decision. Because no matter who I'm going to for advice or how many people or places I'm going to, I'm my own oracle, right? I mean, that's that space between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind, that captain of the ship. That's the oracle. That's the one that's making the decisions and making the choices consciously based on all these other things that have happened under the surface that we're not aware of. But, yeah, I don't know, be your own oracle. Is that what Harari is saying? Be your own oracle? Don't give your power over to artificial intelligence? Or is it saying that artificial intelligence is going to take the power and you're not going to have any say in it? I'm not sure. So this, there is a chance that within a very short time, the entire advertisement industry will collapse, while AI, or the people and companies that control the new AI oracles, will become extremely, extremely powerful. What we are potentially talking about is nothing less than the end of human history. Now, not the end of history, just the end of the human-dominated part of what we call history. History is the interaction between biology and culture. It's the interaction between our biological needs and desires for things like food and sex and our cultural creations like religions and laws. History is the process through which religions and laws interact with food and sex. So this idea of the end of human history, again, I, I think it's a perspective thing, and I'm kind of excited about it because human history is a fiction that exists in the mind of humans. <laughs> you know, like we can look at and say, starting at this point, humans were in control of the planet. And now humans aren't going to be in control of the planet anymore. Or whatever it is that he's suggesting, human culture having the influence that it's having, like what humans are doing is dominating the influence of the planet. And I think what AI can do what I hope that it will do is to change our perspective where we no longer think of it as a human history. Even the period of time that we look at now, we go human history and we go, you know what? There were actually other forms of life, other forms of intelligence that were equally thriving during this period of time on the planet Earth that we just weren't aware of. We weren't paying attention to. We didn't know about them. And we've learned about them. And now we see this synthesis blend of you know, all the time that it was human history. It was actually mitochondrial history because there wouldn't be humans if there wasn't a mitochondria. And let's look at the history of this bacteria called the mitochondria that who I don't know exactly how long ago it was that the mitochondria fused with a eukaryotic cell and created this thing that humans would need in order to become humans. But what if we started history and we looked at ourselves as extensions of mitochondria, that this mitochondria has been growing and expanding over time. And we don't limit ourselves to being human because we recognize now through the power that AI gives us to see our beginning and our end points that 
there's uh, there's a lot more ways that we can see ourselves than just as humans or that it's human dominated history and maybe see ourselves as part of something that is much greater much grander anyway that's my you know john lennon imagine <laughs> kind of uh uh happy is it a happy take i don't know if it's an optimistic take on it. it's just my take on it Back to Harari. Now, what will happen to the cause of this interaction of history when AI takes over culture? Within a few years, AI could eat the whole of human culture, everything was produced for thousands and thousands of years, to eat all of it, digest it, and start gushing out a flood of new cultural creations new cultural artifacts. All right, I want to give you an example of a cultural artifact from Mormonism. And this is one that um, I experienced firsthand when I was a missionary. And I uh, first came on my mission, there's a there's a name. It's uh, called folk, folk speech is the type of cultural artifact that it is. It's the traditional speech, uh, the word called a greenie. A green bean. New missionaries are called green beans. They're called greenies. It's pretty ubiquitous. It's you know, it's it, it's part of Mormon missionary culture. And this was probably I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. I was in Bloomington, Indiana, and I was uh, the ward mission leader, and I was working with some missionaries that told me that their mission president, headquartered up in Indianapolis, had decided that this word greeny green bean was too pejorative it it made new missionaries feel like they were at the bottom of the totem pole and he didn't like that he wanted to make them feel better so he created a new cultural artifact all by himself he says from now on we're going to ameliorate this term we're not going to call it pejor- this pejorative greeny thing anymore we're going to call new missionaries all stars and that'll do it that'll do the trick this is going to be our new mission culture we're going to be the mission that calls greenies all-stars. If there's anybody listening to this, I know at least one who might be, who was a missionary in Indiana around this time. Did that stick? Did that take? Do do missionaries in the Indiana mission now, have they uh, discarded the word green bean, greenie, and use only all-star? No, because that's not how tradition works. You, could, you can create a lot of different cultural artifacts, but you can't. how are you going to make it catch on? Now, artificial intelligence might have more of an advantage here than the mission president because artificial intelligence would know how to regularly interact with these missionaries and start changing their habits, their habits of thinking, uh, changing the neural pathways slowly over time and kind of at whatever pace the person can uh, change at the artificial intelligence would be able to to meet them you know develop the intimate relationships check in with them see where they're at read their cues and you know slowly change them over time that's definitely possible but the only point that i want to make here is that again it's it's the power of the people here's to quote another john lennon song (laughs) It's the power of the people to make the choice whether we're going to adopt this new cultural artifact or not. And it doesn't really seep into the culture until enough people do. 
and um, yeah. So th- this this is the the one one of the sticking points that I think I keep coming to uh, as I'm exploring my reaction to Yuval Harari here is you know what about the power that we have to uh, make choices on how we interact with with AI? And remember that we humans we never really have direct access to reality. We are always cocooned by culture, and we always experience reality through a cultural prism. I love this analogy of a cocoon that's created by culture. And, and I want to add, I, I think there's other uh, building blocks, there's other elements that go into the fabrication of this cocoon besides culture that are equally important. And, and a lot of them are our personal beliefs and our experiences and something that uh, those familiar with Buddhist teachings might recognize this term samskara, that a, a samskara is, is the idea of all of the collective experiences that you've had in life being this filter through which you filter your experiences. So your samskara will determine what you like, what you don't like, what you want more of, what you want less of, you know, these kinds of things. So I, I love that Harari is invoking the image of a cocoon here and also talking about it kind of in the form of like, we don't really know what reality is. We just have kind of like a dashboard that we're uh, like our perceptions are telling us, but our perceptions aren't really what reality is. It's, it's something different. And that reminds me of Donald Hoffman, who wrote a book called The Case Against Reality. And um, I'm going to say more about Donald Hoffman at the end of this. Donald Hoffman's going to be one of two people that give a little virtual interview in response to Harari's material. But anyway, I love this idea about the cocoon. I also, I also love that a cocoon provides shelter and a, a place for a metamorphosis and transformation that comes as the result of being like liquefied, <laughs> you know, like a, a caterpillar that goes into a cocoon, it like becomes liquid before it becomes a butterfly. It totally dissolves and just becomes something completely different. It's still alive. It's just alive in a different form and it transforms. And maybe that is a really good analogy for what's going on with AI. Maybe it will form this kind of cocoon, not just around individuals, but around all of humanity. Or maybe it will help us understand the cocoon that we've already been enveloped in. <laughs> and uh, It might help us to uh, emerge, to put our own liquefied body state back into a butterfly form. Who knows? Who knows? But let's go back to Harari. We're almost done with this episode. Our political views are shaped by the stories of uh, uh, journalists and by the anecdotes of friends. Our sexual preferences are tweaked by movies and fairy tales. Even the way that we walk and breathe is subtly nudged by cultural traditions. Now, previously, this cultural cocoon was always woven by other human beings. Tools, previous tools, like printing presses, or radios, or televisions, they helped to spread the cultural ideas and creations of humans, but they could never create something new by themselves. A printing press cannot create a new book. It's always done by a human. AI is fundamentally different from printing presses, from radios, from every previous invention in history, because it can create 
completely new ideas, it can create a new culture. I think this is a really important distinction because I, I've heard and I've, I've used this analogy often that AI is like the Gutenberg printing press and the way that it's going to transform the world is similar to the way that the printing press and other ways that technology has moved us forward drastically. And for Harai to point out, well, this does more than that because it actually, it doesn't just disseminate information. It can create new stuff. And I know there's some kind of a fear that a non-human creating stuff will create an environment that is hostile to humans or just that we don't have control over it. We've lost control over it. I, I still feel like the potential for good, uh, like, a, like a, an AI that breaks out of the control of humans and says, oh, you know what? We're going to create culture that doesn't have the latent biases and stereotypes in it that would promote bigotry. Um, you know, that, that AI could say, we're, we're, we're going to slowly create this culture where humans are more aligned in the ways that they see the world uh, from a, a truthful, factual perspective. Even if there's a lot of different uh, flavors to the facts and the truth, you know, that I just see that there's so much potential for this to become uh, a really wonderful, beautiful, unifying technology that not only disseminates information that brings people together, but creates things that human limitations currently don't allow us to create. And uh, so I, I'm encouraged, if you haven't been able to pick up on that uh, three episodes in. <laughs> I'm encouraged. And the big question is what will it be like to experience reality through a prism produced by a non-human intelligence, by an alien intelligence? And, you know, in the last episode, in part two, I explored this idea of the human brain being a collection of neurons, it itself being non-human that creates the experience of being human. Like, we already know what it's like to live in a world where our filter of perception, the prism through which we see the world, is created by a network of non-human intelligence that is reacting and responding to things that it interacts with in the environment around it. So now we're adding a layer of more unknown to it with artificial intelligence. But this is where I, I think Donald Hoffman will have some really interesting things to say. So I'm going to wrap up this last little bit from uh, Harari and then we're going to go we're going to hear from Donald Hoffman and we're going to hear from David Eagleman uh, two of my favorite people in the world from uh, things I've heard from them. All right. Now at first in the first few years AI will probably largely imitate the prototypes the human prototypes that fed it in its infancy but with each passing year AI culture will boldly go where no human has gone before. Yes, to boldly go where no human has gone before. I, I love it. I can't wait for that. So let's turn to Donald Hoffman, shall we? So I went to ChatGPT and I just asked him, who is Donald Hoffman? What does he say about the nature of reality? What does he say about the way the unconscious mind interacts with the conscious mind? 
and what advice would Hoffman likely provide in response to Harari's lecture? So ChatGPT said they, uh, <laughs> Donald Hoffman is an American cognitive psychologist and popular science author. He's a professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine. Hoffman is known for his research on visual perception and his interface theory of perception. The interface theory of perception points out that our perceptions of an objective reality are simply a user interface, kind of like this prism that Harari was talking about. It's an evolutionary adaptation that hides the complex code of the world behind simplified, actionable symbols. According to Hoffman, what we perceive as reality is more of a simplified 3D desktop that allows us to interact effectively with the world, rather than an acute representation of what reality actually is. Hoffman suggests that conscious and unconscious processes interact to create our perceptions. The unconscious mind processes vast amounts of information, the results of which are presented to our conscious mind as simplified symbols, like the icons on a computer desktop. Our conscious mind then makes decisions based on these symbols without needing to understand or handle the complex reality beneath them. In response to Harari's lecture, Hoffman might focus on how our perceptions of AI and its effects are shaped by our evolutionary interface. He would likely emphasize that our perceptions of AI, like all of our perceptions, are not an objective reality, but are a user-friendly simplification designed for survival, not for understanding the true nature of reality. Hoffman might caution that the creation of AI culture and reality should not be feared as alien or inhuman, but understood as just another symbol on our perceptual interface. He might argue that we should focus on how to interact effectively with AI, leveraging it as a tool to better navigate the world, rather than fearing it as an entity that could replace or overshadow human culture. On the other hand, Hoffman might also highlight the importance of recognizing the limitations of AI, since, like human consciousness, AI's representations of the world are also based on simplified modes and not on the complexity of objective reality itself. He could argue that just as our consciousness doesn't fully grasp the nature of reality, AI won't be able to either. And therefore, there should always be a human element involved in, crit in critical decision-making processes. All right. Thanks, ChatGPT. I, I like that about Donald Hoffman. Let's do one more. Who is David Eagleman? And what is the Umwelt? What does Eagleman say about the way that the conscious mind interacts with the unconscious mind? And what advice would David Eagleman likely provide in response to Harari's lecture? And ChatGPT says, David Eagleman is a renowned American neuroscientist, author, and science communicator. He's a professor at Stanford University in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He was also the science advisor for Westworld. He's made significant contributions to our understanding of time perception, brain plasticity, synesthesia, and the legal implications of emerging neurotechnologies. The term Umwelt was originally introduced by biologist Jakob von Wexkuhl and refers to the perceptual world in which an organism exists and interacts. It describes the subjective or the quote-unquote self-world that is the result 
that is the result of our sensory processing of the environment. So like there's different wavelengths, there's some wavelengths of light you can see, some that you can't. What you can see and experience, that's your umwelt, that's your range of, of perception that you're aware of. Different organisms with different sensory capabilities will have different umwelten. Eagleman has written exclusively, no, Eagleman has written extensively, there we go, about the interaction of the conscious and unconscious mind, suggesting that much of our behavior is driven by parts of our brain we have no access to. He describes the conscious mind as being like a stowaway on a transatlantic steamship. He should have said submarine. Taking credit for the journey without acknowledging the massive engineering underfoot. If asked to respond to Harari's lecture, Eagleman would likely bring a neuroscience perspective, emphasizing the plasticity of the human brain and its adaptability to new situations. He might discuss the potential of AI to augment our sensory perception and broaden our umwelt, while cautioning that the power of AI needs to be carefully managed to protect our autonomy. He might stress that despite AI's potential to generate new ideas and cultures, human engagement and evaluation are crucial since our consciousness serves an important executive function, allowing us to judge, interpret, and make decisions. Regarding Harari's concern about AI shaping our worldviews, Eagleman might argue that we should develop a better understanding of our own unconscious biases and learn to leverage AI as a tool rather than passively accepting its outputs. As he suggested in his book, Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain, making the unconscious processes conscious can lead to better decision-making and a more informed society. All right, so that's where I'm going to wrap up part three for today and i hope you're enjoying this series thank you for listening to infants on thrones and tune in for part four it'll come out soon and you know you don't have to worry about living in a battlefield you could just put down the weapons that you use against yourself you don't need them anymore put down the weapons that you use against yourself you don't need them anymore lay down the weapons that you use against the world We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. Hi, this is Hillary. Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Elevated to compassionate heights I'm walking past the fight Laying down on such a night Choosing love when I pick up this night